0: I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. As we meditate on Habakkuk chapter 1, we will note difficulties and trials and societal injustice and consider God's dealings in these areas. Let's pray together. Father, you are righteous and just, you're faithful and true, you're long-suffering and kind. We're thankful that we can count on you to do the right thing all the time and to deal with our unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of society at large we can count on you to do the right thing and to bring forth justice. Help us that we would yield our hearts and minds to you this morning, allowing your spirit to have his way in us. May we have a greater appreciation for you, for your word, for your son, and your spirit as we further worship you in the in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. We don't need to look very far at all to find injustice in our society. You can find videos of officers of the law shooting a person as they run away. You can read of officers arriving at a playground and gunning down a a boy. Now, of course, there's a context to every circumstance, and some will have some rationalizations for their actions, and maybe you can see their side, maybe you can't all we can come to as a bottom line is this is not the way things ought to be. The way we see our society is not the way things ought to be. It's very clear. In every sphere of society, in every region of the world, in varying ways, injustice seems to rear its ugly head. It comes forth time and again in various ways. For those of us who know God... We see and we hear of these things and we long for the day that Jesus returns and makes all things right. We know he'll do it the right way. We recognize that these issues, these kinds of things, these injustices flow from a corrupt nature that infests mankind. This is our understanding. On the other hand, some point to these types of injustices to disprove the existence of God, they may use phrases like, "If there were really a good and all-powerful God, He would not allow blank to happen." You can think of 9/11. You can think of Columbine. You can think of Sandy Hook and various and sundry, dozens of other items in our country and hundreds of items around the world, if if God were truly good and truly all-powerful, he wouldn't allow these things to take place. As Habakkuk watched the denigration of his people Israel, he wondered what God's plan was. As we go through our study of Habakkuk, we're going to notice some questions that Habakkuk has for God. And to his credit, we will notice this. He complained to God rather than about God. So that's to his credit. What we want to consider for ourselves, are you critical of God's justice? Are you critical of God's form of justice, manner of justice, the substance of his justice, and the end of his justice. Are, are you critical of God's justice? I think that is a logical question that comes from our study of chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk. And so we're going to notice some, some thoughts, some truths on justice or injustice as we navigate our way through chapter 1. First of all, injustice is easy to spot. Injustice is easy to spot. You can recognize it all day long and every day. Look at what this, how this book begins. Starts off, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So God is giving him a vision. He's giving him revelation. And it's a burden, so it's heavy. It's a heavy load because of the weightiness of the circumstance, the weightiness of the message, Habakkuk is is really bent under the pressure of this concept. So here's the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And he questions God, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence! And you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity? And cause me to see trouble. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. He is truly burdened. And what was the cause of his burden? What was the cause of Habakkuk's cry? There was violence in verse 2. In verse 3, I'm seeing iniquity. In verse 3, I am seeing trouble. In verse 3, plundering and violence. Verse 3, strife and contention. Verse 4, the law is powerless. In other words, Here's this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way things are supposed to be ordered. This is the way people are supposed to act, supposed to live, supposed to treat one another. This is the way it's supposed to go, but it's not getting the job done. Well, I think that raises a good question about the law. What is the purpose of the law? God's law and law in general. Well, there are various ways to understand it. There's one main idea that the bible makes very clear about the law but i think there are some other underlying concepts about the purpose of the law what is the law for the law described the law described what god's kingdom could look like when his people surrendered to his will if you look at the law this is what Things could look like if people would surrender to His will. The law would 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 reign supreme, and it would be evident. This is how God intended His kingdom to be ordered. That's one reason for the law. But the law, at the heart, at its heart, demonstrates and has demonstrated man's inability to meet God's standards of righteousness. That's what the law does. It shows us our failure. The law shows us our inability. The law reveals in us sin. You'll remember that Paul said when the law came, sin came forth and I, what? I died. Sin revealed, uh, the law revealed sin. The law never, listen carefully, the law never has, it doesn't, and it never will produce righteousness. The law never has, the law does not, and the law never will produce righteousness. The law does not give God's people the ability to be righteous. Man was never made righteous by the law. In fact, Paul said when the law came, sin revived and I died. So, as Habakkuk surveys the scene, he says, the, the society, everything around here, the people, your people, they're a mess. Why are you allowing me to see this sinfulness and this trouble? Why this lawlessness? Why this tragedy and turmoil all around? I'm crying out and you are saying nothing. He's a bit bent, I think, but he's able to spot this injustice and he says that justice never goes forth. I think that might be a little bit of hyperbole, right? Justice never goes forth. There's not even a shred of justice anywhere. Well, Probably not. Probably not. But his last statement in verse 4, he says, perverse judgment proceeds. In other words, the judgments that are coming forth are twisted. Let's, let's think about this for a second. Have you noticed over the last years any perverted laws that have come forth? Any judgments that maybe you thought, hmm, not sure where you're getting this. It's, it's like every new one. <laughs> every new law you think well, something's not quite right where's the, where's the sensibility here things are twisted well this is the way things go when our, when our mind is corrupt our decisions are corrupt and that's the way it is so Habakkuk cries out essentially Lord intervene that's a, good, that's a good cry wouldn't you say Lord things aren't right come and deal with it well this is where we come to verses 5 and following And God says, oh, yes, uh, I have some things for you. Uh, I have a plan. Fear not, Habakkuk, I have something coming your way. You might not like it. As we note verse 5, I want to just give you the principle associated with it and maybe some surrounding verses, and that's this. Delayed justice, delayed justice is not injustice. Delayed justice is not injustice. Listen to what God says in verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. In other words, if if this information came from another source, if someone just came up to you and said, this is what's going to happen, you'd say, not going to happen. Because you're hearing it from me, you know that it's true. But you wouldn't believe it otherwise. He was about to be astounded. And when was this going to take place? In your days. So while you've been crying for justice, Habakkuk, justice, it, it's coming. And, and it wasn't injustice just because I delayed Moving further, another principle that we want to note from the rest of this section is this. Justice sometimes comes from an unlikely source. I want you to consider this. Now, the the context of Habakkuk, we're going to be talking about the Babylonians. They're not nice people. They were wicked. They were hasty. They were fierce. They were relentless, they were swift, and they would destroy, they would destroy many of those called God's people. And one would think, this can't be the way. And Habakkuk will ask, Lord, this, this can't be the way. But notice that justice sometimes comes from an unlikely source. For them, that context is the Babylonians. What is the context for people today? Just name it. And I can't can't name it for you. But things happen, and it's not karma. People want to call it karma. There's justice. Justice comes. You just don't know when, from where, and through what means? But justice does come. All right, verses 6 and following. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, it's another name for the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth. What are they going to do? They're going to possess dwellings that are not theirs. They have been doing that, and they're going to do that in your land. Verse 7 They are terrible. And dreadful, their judgment and their dignity proceed not from the societal norms, but from themselves. They're the ones who dictate what justice and dignity are. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They're they're precise. They're exact. They're fast. They're going to get the job done. Verse 9, they all come for what? Well, what was one of Habakkuk's complaints? There's violence in the land! Won't you save? Well, I'm sending some more violence from another source. Verse uh, verse 9, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. In other words, they have no, no respect for your king. They're not going to treat your king kindly. If they take your king, they're not going to say, okay, we're going to treat this, this, this is a kingly person, we're going to make sure we take care of them well. They have no respect for kings. Your princes will be scorned by them. They're just going to dismantle you. This is what the Babylonians were doing. Verse. In the middle of verse 10, they deride every stronghold. In other words, nothing stops them they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Now, that's very interesting. What in the world is an earthen mound? Well, we don't use this type of strategy anymore. But they used to have walled cities, strongholds. And so they'd have their, their walls, and they'd have the little things at the top, where the people would be there to throw rocks and you know all the things that they could do, bow and arrows and this. Well, the Babylonians were smart enough to figure out, well, if I, if I hang out underneath those walls... I'm probably going to die. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start way out there. And we're just going to start raising the earth. A little bit. At a little grade. And eventually, our earth mound will be level with your walls. And uh, guess what? Your advantage is gone. So this is what they would do. They would go and they'd build earthen mounds. And they'd walk up the earthen mounds. And they would just take the strongholds. They didn't, none of that mean, meant anything to them. They were a world power and no one was stopping the Babylonians. Verse 11. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to... What does it say? Look at how mighty the Babylonians are. Look at how far we've come. We can dominate the whole world, and it's got to be because of our God. He's done this. Ah, Look again at verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Well, that's uncomfortable for some. So what we have here is a bit of a dilemma. We have an unjust people, Israel, being judged by God, not specifically because of, but in the sense of the text, because of Habakkuk's request... And God chooses to judge this unjust people with, guess what, unjust people. One commentator wrote, and I thought it was a good statement, just to kind of give us a little little glimpse of this contrast between the injustice of Israel and the injustice of the Babylonians. Judah's sin could easily be categorized, violence, injustice, wrong, strife, conflict, a paralysis of law, perversion of justice, and mistreatment of the righteous. Likewise, the wicked Babylonians were guilty of proud ambition, covetousness, ruthlessness, cruelty, debauchery, and idolatry. So the question we ask is, whose sin is worse? Whose sin is worse? you have an answer in your head? I'd say it's a bit of a trick question. (laughs) Whose sin is more egregious? Those who know God. Those who know the truth. Have a deeper accountability. But everyone is accountable. You need to go no further than Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. To see that all the world stands guilty before God. Everyone is accountable for their sin whether it's because they see the creation of the world and they know the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, or whether their own uh, moral conscience plagues them when they rape and pillage people as they enter into a new town, you can know that they know something is wrong, or whether it's the people of God who have received the oracles of God All the world stands guilty before God, whether they have received the written text in their hands or they see the handiwork of God every day and every day as it proclaims the sun running its circuit like a strong man running its race. Every day we see the handiwork of God. No one is without excuse. Whose sin is worse? Well, guess what? Everyone gives account for sin. As we look a little further, we come to this next section, and in our our next section, we're really only going to focus in on verses 12 and 13. We'll read verses 12 through 17, but 12 and 13 will be our focus, and we're really going to focus in, really, on one main phrase. Here's the principle associated, or at least for our consideration. Our view of God's justice is not always correct. This, This is... This is good consideration. This is good theology for us to consider, ladies and gentlemen. Our own view of God's justice is not always correct. Look, beginning in verse 12. Here's Habakkuk's second question of God Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment? O rock, you have marked them for correction? You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now, verses 14 through 17, he's he's kind of now chiding at the Babylonians. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? That's what the Babylonians are like. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them... Their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? He's making an accusation now against the Babylonians. That's not really our consideration right now, though I think it's very clear he's he's pretty upset. He's pretty upset. First he was upset. Injustice rules our land. Injustice, and you're doing nothing. Why don't you intervene? And God says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I've got my plan. It's all under control. In your days, there's going to be something coming. You wouldn't even believe it if someone told you. It's coming. Then he tells him what it is. And Habakkuk is like, that's not really what I had in mind. I thought it would be nice justice. I thought you would just give us a little slap on the wrist and we'd all move along and everyone would be good little doobies again. This is what I thought would happen. Wrong. Wait just a minute is really his thought. You don't mean to say that you're going to allow them to be a source of your chastising hand. Yes, God told him in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm raising them up. Habakkuk surmises, listen carefully, Habakkuk surmises that this would be contradictory to God's perfections. God, you're holy. You're holy. You're you're not going to use them. They deserve punishment far worse than we deserve punishment. I want to focus our attention on, on this one phrase. I think it really helps us in our own consideration of life Habakkuk asks God this question, and it seems, again, to be a bit of a complaint or a criticism of God's way. He says in verse 13, And hold your tongue? You're holding your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now, let's just take a minute here When Habakkuk started this little treatise and questioning of God, was he not calling his own people wicked? He was. And now he's kind of tweaked the terms a little bit. More righteous. We're more righteous than they are. Oh, friend, I want to ask you a question. We're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I want to ask you a question. Are there levels of righteousness? Well, I'm not quite as bad as that guy over there. I'm a little better than than her. Well, that guy might be a little bit better than me, but, you know. Is that how it works? Let's take a look at a couple of passages. Just for our consideration, we want to understand God's nature as it relates to His justice and the righteousness of people. Take a look at God's. Genesis eighteen. For a moment, you will recognize this context. God said, I, "I can't leave Abram in the dust here. In this information, I can't let him not know that I'm about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to let him know." And Abram is like, "Ah, uh, what do? We, maybe there's another way." And so he starts to question God, not inappropriately. And here's what he says. We're going to start, we're just going to cut right into the context at verse 23, Genesis 18, 23. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you. Listen carefully. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, you know how the rest of this leads, right? Well, you know, I know that there aren't 50. Um, What what about this number? 40. What, What about this number? And it finally gets down to like, what, what if we get down to, to, to this bottom line here? Will you, will you, will you save it if there are ten? Yes. But you couldn't find ten, could you? The question here is this, this concept of wickedness and this concept of righteousness. Is there a difference between one level of righteousness to the other? So if there are levels of righteousness, you've got one person, he doesn't cheat on his taxes, right? But he's involved in adultery. Is this person less or more righteous than a person who does both? How about is this person that that doesn't cheat on his taxes but is involved in adultery, is is he less righteous than a murderer? How about this one? Is this person more or less righteous than a lazy person who refuses to go to work? Where do we come up with our standard of righteousness? What is righteousness? Who is righteous? What is it? Well, this is where we want to follow a little further. Now, take a look in 2 Peter chapter 2 for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 2. Just to remind you of what we're talking about in this section of our, of our study, our view of God's justice is not always correct. And it's probably very good that our view isn't the right one. Because if it were, we would have some serious problems. What comes naturally in our system of justice is much, much different than the supernatural system of justice that God has enacted. Second Peter chapter th- uh, 2, we're going to cut again into a context. God's talking about judging those who, who refuse Him. In verse 6, it says and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example uh, to those who afterward would live ungodly. I missed verse 5. I meant to start there. Sorry about that. No. Where am I trying? Verse 7. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the, days, for the day of judgment. Now, how many of you have been reading through your Bibles and you came to Second Peter chapter 2 and you're reading and you read righteous lot and something just doesn't sound right? Anyone? Raise your hand if you came across that passage and said, something just doesn't seem right when you say Lot and righteous and righteous Lot all at the same time. Something doesn't seem right. And God doesn't just say it once, like, well, maybe it just slipped. He didn't mean it. Three times. Three times God says Lot is righteous. Now, let me, let's just think about Lot for just a minute. Lot chooses to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He raises his family there. He's become prominent in the community. God sends an angel, two of them, to Lot to say, hey, listen, I'm going to take you and your family out of here because I'm going to destroy this place because of the wickedness of the society. It's just gotten to that point where uh, their cup of iniquity is full. Lot has these angels, these men, but they're angels in his house. The men of the town come pounding on the door. Hey, we saw those neighbors. Give them over to us. And Lot's like, no, no, no. These are are special. We've got to treat them well. We can't do this. And they're pounding on the door some more. And Lot's getting a little afraid. I want to tell you what righteous Lot did next. You remember. It makes me squirm. He offered his virgin daughters to them. Here, take them. Because what's the matter with this dude? He needs a whooping. I can't even imagine. This is what he offers. Then, as you know, the the story goes. It's history. He talks to his sons-in-law about leaving, and they laugh at him. What What are you talking about, you silly old man? This is righteous lot. No influence in his own house, willing to give his own daughters up to be horribly, horribly sexually mistreated. And here we we look back on what I would say from a human standpoint, understand, a despicable human, worthless human, to me, humanly, and God says, righteous lot. Hey, as uncomfortable as that might make us feel, I want to give you the good news. It is good news that God called Lot righteous. Because it lets us in on the reality of God's system of righteousness. You see, the reason for Lot's righteousness was not because... Lot was a really good guy that did all kinds of great things, that accumulated a great standing before God. Lot was righteous the same way Abraham was righteous. The Bible says in Genesis 15 and verse 6 about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. You know, he's using an accounting term. He says, What has happened in the life of Abraham is when he trusted in me, when he understood that I am the Lord and he believed that I'm the Lord and that my word is right, when that happened, I gave him righteousness. I gave him a standing of righteousness. And thus we have Abraham, the friend of God, the righteous one, because, not because Abraham was. The best? Let's think about Abraham, right? Hagar. Need I say anything more? That's not the worst. That was not his worst deed, friends. I can think of a far more despicable deed he repeated twice, going into a place, basically handing his wife into some other man. What's wrong with you, bud? What's wrong with you? But he's accounted as righteous why is that good news well because that's how God deals with us look at Romans chapter 4 for a moment Romans chapter 4 now how do we get off on this why are we talking about imputed righteousness remember Habakkuk's question God how can you hold your tongue when wicked people like them Bring wickedness upon a people that are more righteous. Well, where is their righteousness found if they are indeed righteous? Even though earlier Habakkuk said they were wicked. Well, their righteousness would be found somewhere else other than their own righteous source. Romans 4, take a look beginning in verse 22. Paul quotes Genesis 15. He says, and therefore it was accounted to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us. What shall be imputed to us? Righteousness. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. This one who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now listen, here's what God is telling us. Just like Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness, when a person in 2016 recognizes their sin, sees the gospel, the gospel is Jesus died for our sin, God takes our sin, he removes it from us, It's been placed on Christ. He died for it. He was pronounced guilty for it. He became sin for us, even though we knew no sin, so that God could impute His righteousness on our account. Righteous lot. He's righteous not because of His works, but because of Christ's. Though He didn't know Christ, He did believe God. One more passage about this, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul giving his testimony to the church at Philippi. He spoke about not relying upon his own righteousness, that his own credentials would only get him so far, so their credentials could get them even less. And so he lets them know, as he lets us know, that all, all of his righteousness is found in Christ. Verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3. you are either righteous through faith in Christ or you are unrighteous through your own merits. It's true of every human. You are either righteous because of the merits of Christ and your faith in Him or you are unrighteous due to your own merits. As Habakkuk surveyed the scene, as he considered God's answer to his question about Israel's wicked behavior, he made the mistake that many have made. He assumed that Israel's performance of some good deeds would have given them a better standing than the frightening, wicked acts of their pagan neighbors. The reality is that our deeds do not make us in good standing with God. Only his acts. Only his acts give us that right standing. To Habakkuk and many others, God's system of justice, at least at the surface, appears unjust. They do not approve of God's standard of justice. And I ask you again, As I asked you earlier, are you critical of God's justice? Many who disapprove simply choose to say that God doesn't exist. But there is another way to view these challenges of human existence. One commentator gave a nice summary here that I thought I would share with you. Such a word from God implies that the turmoil and violence and death in our societies may not be evidence of God's absence from our lives, but instead the witness to his actual working in judgment as he pursues his purpose. No event in human history, therefore, is to be understood as completely divorced from his lordly action and will. God is always at work. Always involved, always pressing forward toward his kingdom. Listen carefully. But the means by which he chooses to pursue that goal may be as astounding as the destruction of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the figure of a man on a cross. When we think of the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the justice of God in concert with his mercy, his grace, his love, and his long-suffering. A righteous God that demands righteousness from his creatures provided righteousness through His own Son. This Son, who never sinned, laid down His life to provide a righteousness that no human could have earned for himself or herself. Second Corinthians 5.21 For God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that we might be made the righteousness of God through Him. When you think of God's system of justice, you must, you must consider this ultimate display of His justice and see every other act of His justice in light of the cross. We can't look at God's justice without seeing the cross. It is the, the epicenter of everything He has done. Every ounce of God's justice and judgment must be seen in light of the cross. Our God's justice is right. No matter what our gut or our society might proclaim. If you look back at Habakkuk chapter 1 again later today and you, you read through and you think, Wow, Habakkuk is very concerned about the sinfulness of his society and the, and the covenant people of God. He's very concerned about this, and he cries out for deliverance. And then, and then God says, I have, I have an answer for you. It's, it's going to happen in your days. It's going to be astounding. You wouldn't believe it if anyone told you, except for me, I'm bringing in the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is like, no, this is not the way it's going to be. You're too holy for this. You're too pure for this. You would never do such a thing. How could you allow the wicked to devour someone more righteous than he? And the reality is they were no more righteous than the Babylonians. And so God in his justice brought forth justice. Why? Because God was going to bring us to the cross. He was always going to bring us to the cross. We were never going to avoid the cross. From eternity past, the cross was in view. Not one thing has happened in history, in eternity, without the cross being central to it. Friends, if God were just the way that we in our minds want him to be, we would be eternally punished and separated from him forever. Our system of justice is different. Someone comes and takes your child, and you never get that child back, and you find that person, what do you want to happen to them? Hey, listen, we're not a judging society. We want, hey, listen, I'm not going to judge you. I'm sure you had some really deep reasons why you did that to my child. Is that how you're going to go about it? This is how people talk. They flap their gums like this is how we should live until something happens to them. And then they want justice. But they want want justice much different than the justice that they would have called for if they weren't involved. The kind of justice that God offers to us is one that says, hey, listen, you're a sinner. You deserve hellfire. Instead of me giving that to you, I'm going to pour my wrath out on my son, who did nothing wrong. Sounds unjust to me, doesn't it? But in God's justice, he's never done one thing. He's never done one thing that was unrighteous. So his act of sacrificing his son was not unjust. It just appears to our minds to be injustice. God is just. He doesn't ever waver from his justice. And so his act of crucifying his son for us was an act of mercy, was an act of grace, was an act of kindness, was an act of love, was an act of long-suffering, but it was also an act of justice so that my sin would never be called to account again. You look at Lot. Thousands of years later, God records Lot and says he's righteous Lot. Why? Because he changed his way? No, because God changed the record. How about for you? Do you have a righteous standing with God? Is it because you're a really good person and you've worked really diligently to make sure you followed every law and obeyed every authority in your life and you were very kind to every person you encountered and you gave to the poor, you fed the needy, you were were everything for everyone else and so you're righteous. If that's what you're counting on, you will find yourself sadly lacking at the judgment seat of Christ. But if all your righteousness is wrapped up in the perfect record of Jesus... If you have called upon the name of the Lord, God has changed your record so that you're no longer so-and-so the sinner, but you're so-and-so the righteous. Not your righteousness, his righteousness. It's a perfect and a pure righteousness that could not be attained, was not deserved, but cannot be marred in any way. Are you critical of God's justice? I'm thinking, if you know Christ, if you know Him as your Savior, any critical concept of God's judgment is is going away. It, It lessens and lessens every time we see what God is and what God does for His people. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You we ask that you'd help us to continue to learn from you and to appreciate you and to reverence you and to glorify you. And we pray, Father, that your justice would be seen in our lives. We, we want your righteous standard to be upheld within us. We know that as those that have trusted Christ, as those that are your people, we we are considered righteous in our standing with you, we we want to display that righteousness and we know the Spirit must do that in us. And we we ask that you'd help us to humble ourselves, to surrender our will to you, that your kingdom would be seen, that your Son would be seen, that your word would be on display for your glory. Do your work in each one's life. I don't know what's going on in, in anyone here. You do. We commit ourselves to you, to humbly, lovingly worship you, to thank you, and to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.